Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 18th, 2019. This is episode 2,533 of the Survival Podcast. It is the Expert Council show for October 19th, 2019, and we have a good lineup of Expert Council members for you today. I will tell you that I pretty much cleaned out the Expert Council folder in my email program. I think I got one in reserve. So I need questions for Expert Council members for next week, and I would love them over the weekend so I can get them to them by Monday and say, hey, some of you guys are pikers. Get off the pikers list. Get your Expert Council answers in. Here's what I got for you today. I've got Jeff Lawton on building soil on rocky ground. I've got Nicole Awesome Sauce on canning with low to no sugar. I have choosing a beef breed of cattle for your homestead from Farmer Darby Simpson. I got concerns with an unused septic system and freezing in northern climates from Ben Falk, who knows a little bit about northern climates. And I have tra tax strategies and implications for forex trading. With John Pugliano, I got cleaning and rehabbing used firearms from J.R. Haley. It's one of my favorite subjects. I love to find older guns that were just lightly abused that you can get for a little less than they're really worth and fixing them up. J.R. is going to talk about that. And then I have a thing for you. That, it's really not a question. It came from a, a little stupid meme that I posted on Facebook. It was uh, two guys. It looked like judo is what they were doing. Uh, the one clearly had a higher belt than the other one. The one that had a lower belt was a huge guy, like a, ma ma a mountain of a man, like a Paul Wheaton type. And then the little guy was a really little guy, like littler than Nick Ferguson, if you know what Nick Ferguson looks like type. And he's like up on him, like grabbing him with his legs on him, trying to pull him down by his neck. And the big guy's just standing there like, what the hell? And there's somebody in the back saying, use his own weight against him. And I posted that, and I said, you know, this idea that we seem to have that the little guy can beat the big guy just because the little guy's got good technique, mostly it's stupid. And it launched a whole shitload of people that wanted to tell me their personal story of how they saw somebody that was 150 pounds beat somebody that's 200 pounds at the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Dojo or something like that. And I've talked about this before, but we're going to do a little, another little segment on this called Life in the Realm of Combat is neither like the movies nor the dojo. We're going to talk about the reality of violence at the end of today's episode. I'm also going to talk about some of the stupid videos out there that try to make points about this, where they do something like, you know, Wing Chun Master versus Karate Master or something. And when you look at the video, like neither one of these people are masters of anything. And I'll tell you why it doesn't really prove anything and why... We need to think differently if we want to stay alive in the real world where there's actual combat going on. And I'm not talking about going overseas and getting shot at. I'm talking about somebody trying to kill you or really hurt you just because. And how dangerous people who are completely untrained can really be. And how seriously you need to take this stuff and why. We're going to talk about all that at the end today. Before we uh, hear from our first expert council member, let's start off with a quote by authors, Arthur C. Clarke. The only way to discover the limits of the possible is to go beyond them 
into the impossible. This is a, a really deep quote. It's deeper than it sounds at first. Almost everything that everybody decides they want to do that's never been done before is considered impossible. That's what makes it seem like there's no way they'll be able to do it. You'll hear people say, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And, 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 and the, the monkeys start flinging shit from the sidelines immediately, telling them how stupid they are that that can't be done. I, I recently uh, read an article that was scientists explaining why humanity would never, I repeat, never inhabit other planets. We just, it will never happen. And it said, we won't even be, you know, orbiting Jupiter uh, in 500 years. And I'm like, somebody needs to tell these guys, we've already sent air, we've already sent spacecraft out that orbited Jupiter. Now, they orbited Jupiter and left, or they decided it wasn't worth doing anything else, and they let it crash into Jupiter to see what would happen. I believe they did that with at least one spacecraft from Jupiter, let it crash into the planet. But we've already put craft in orbit around Jupiter. Now, I guess they meant we wouldn't have space stations orbiting Jupiter. I just find all of this stuff that people say we will never do or won't be able to do to be loser language. And the only way that we have ever advanced, ever, in every significant advancement in technology or humanity, period. Somebody did something that nobody thought they could do, and if we don't do things that people don't think can be done, nothing new ever happens. And it makes me think of another quote. I don't remember who said it, but it basically was, those who say that a thing cannot, should, cannot be done should get out of the way of the person actually doing it. And so I thought that was a good kickoff to a Friday show, especially as we get ready to head into a weekend. With that, let's hear from our first expert council member of the day. This is going to be Jeff Lawton on building soil on rocky ground. This is a question that comes from someone who's got some land up in the Pocono Mountains. And just let me give you a little understanding of what land like that is like. It's granite. And it's, it's often the case the soils are thin, but sometimes soils are actually pretty decent. Uh, you got a lot of boulders. You got a lot of glacial rock from the last ice age in that area. I'd, you know, grew up hunting and fishing in the Pennsylvania mountains, including the Poconos. Uh, I lived for three years just north of Allentown, right in the foothills of the Poconos. So I know the area well. And uh, this is actually a really great place to homestead. Pennsylvania pisses me off in a lot of ways with their government, but it is a really great state for homesteading. Anyway, with that in mind, let's hear from Jeff Lawton on building soil on rocky ground. Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And uh, I have a question coming from the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania. And um, it's in relation to um, a property that's uh, four acres, 75% wooded, and um, it's got uh, very rocky ground. And um, they'd like to know how to build soil quick. And they can use some logs. So, yeah, what you really need to do is set up a soil building process and uh, although terraces are uh, um, nice for creating level ground and they don't necessarily build soil uh, rapidly they're, they're more of a um, you're going to build rock, rock or log terrace um, walls and then backfill with soil to get a real terrace so that's good for getting a vegetable garden or something like that but you're talking about building soil uh, you really need to make little half circle, like little crescent walls, 
Um, they can be um, and any size really, but it normally say about two meters across. Uh, that's six feet, seven feet across, um, and um, um, build a little rock uh, wall. Um, um, and you could use logs to do the same thing. So you could use check logs, but you really want the sort of half circle coming like a little, like the size of a, um, like shape of a little crescent moon as a, as a, with a level top. And um, so that um, behind you can fill with organic matter and mulches and wood chip if you've got lots of logs you can chip or chopped up small branches, you know, leaf rakings, any of these things. If you're really short of soil depth, um, you want to create these little tiny sort of half-circle crescent gabions. Now, um, the trees that you're going to have to plant are the hardiest nitrogen-fixing trees you can get in your region. I would imagine alder is a, a native pioneer there and, and um, it fixes nitrogen, although it's not a legume. Um, but you're going to need any of those sort of trees. So you're going to go for hardy legumes if you've got them. Uh, trees or any non-allelopathic tree, any tree that doesn't restrict the growth of other trees. So only 5% of the trees in the world are actually allelopathic. And um, about uh, 80% of the trees in the world are just neutral. And, and only about 15% are really positive, as in they, they fix um, minerals or, or, or they fix nitrogen. So... Um, Plant in around these holes, uh, the, these these little check half circle crescent check walls. Uh, backfill with soil if you've got it, but you know just build soil in there because if you can network these across the slope, and even if you can connect them together with little um, diversion drains or, or or check logs. So you, the idea is that there's a lot of material hopping downhill that we don't see. And if you put a swale across country that's forested upslope or through slope, you see enormous amounts of organic matter uh, that build in the swale that you don't normally see because it's just hopping downhill in, in rains um, or any kind of movement. And, and it's very slow. Like, you don't sort of see it. It's across the whole landscape. As soon as you put up something that catches it, um, then you see the amount of delivery, and that will build soil. Now, to speed this up, if you if you are building mulch, or when you are building mulch, should I say, let's talk positively, in these little half-circle crescents, um, they're level at the top, uh, they're building soil they're, uh, in, in behind. Um, if you add any, or, any manure to the organic matter, so if you've got an access to any kind of manure, chicken manure, horse manure, cow manure, sheep manure, um, or any of the pelletized uh, manures you can buy, um, like dynamic lifters or any of these like, like pelleted uh, uh, bags of, of, of uh, manures. Just sprinkle a little bit of that through, especially if there's a, a wood chip involved or small twigs involved, and, and that'll add the nitrogen that'll keep the process rolling through from uh, high carbon with the nitrogen through the sort of uh, a uh, casual composting system. You'll be surprised 
Um, it, it'll happen reasonably quickly. So it's all about carbon and nitrogen. The mass is carbon. The minor is nitrogen in proportion. And the rest is all about trapping things um, as they flow downhill, uh, as they hop downhill and, and, and scoop downhill. Um, so you're holding things on contour, the opposite uh, right angle to contour, which is the way everything's hopping. And uh, you'll build soil all right. And um, then you just got to get your hardy trees. Now, particularly go for trees that you can cut and they'll regrow because then you've got a renewable resource of um, quality organic material that's already breaking down the, into the rock crevices and things like this. What you also have to realize is that when you're building large amounts of organic matter like this, you're concentrating it even when you're adding manures. You've got a lot of humic acid, and the humic acid helps the um, uh, helps break down and soften the rock a little bit for the hardy trees to get their roots in and penetrate. And also, there'll be a lot of fungal action involved, and and, and fungi have hi-fi nets that have acid tips on the end of their roots. Uh, sorry, on the end of their their, their hyphae, and they they actually break down rock so the fungi get involved as well as you build up these processes so any of the trees that have mycelium fungi relationships um, that uh, can can uh, associate with fungi um, and, and of course the breaking down of organic matter does this anyway casuarinas do this i know they have uh, mycelium fungi but this is an australian tree or australia australia's um, tree of um, significance. You have them in Florida, but I don't think they're quite cold enough to get up to where you are. So those are the things you're tracking down, and um, I'm sure you'll be surprised that once you you get that trapping system with contour and the material you have and these little hooks. It's all about trapping that organic matter, speeding it up with a little bit of uh, manure as a nitrogen input and um, you'll advance that little system forward into something that's quite significantly different to the surrounding country. Good stuff from Jeff, as always. Next up, let's hear from Nicole. Awesome sauce on making some lower sugar sauce. In fact, canning uh, with low sugar to no sugar. Nicole, what's up with that? Hello, everybody out there in TSP land. This is Nicole Sauce from Living Free in Tennessee with a question from the MeWe Monday chat. Eric wants to know, and this is a very good question, how do you go about reducing sugar in canning? Well, Eric, thanks for the question. You hit the right person with this because until about two years ago, I used absolutely no sugar in canning, and so I've looked into this quite a bit. I'm sorry it took me a few weeks to get back to you on this. I wanted to verify some things with a food lab because all of the research I've done was through the Internet, and it's always nice when you're talking about canning and risking potential botulism or other pathogens to verify with the lab that what you've come to the conclusion of is, in fact, correct. So... To answer the question, first we have to examine what is sugar used for in canning. And it's used primarily for two things. In jams and jellies, it's bonding with the pectin to make them a nice, thick consistency. So if you reduce sugar in jams and jellies, you're going to end up with runny jams and jellies. However, they make another kind of pectin that is 
specifically intended for low sugar or sugar substitute canning. So if you're looking to pull some of the sugar out of what you're canning, that is one way to go. Also, you know what old timers used to do to make jams and jellies? Simmer fruits down for a long time. So things like pears and apples do this really well because they're very high in pectin and there are natural sugars in the fruit. That's how you make pear butter or apple butter. But also if you simmer blackberry mush for long enough, it does firm up. It will not firm up as much as jam that you've used a sure gel packet in. But depending on what your goal is with the product, that can get you pretty far. Now, One caution when reducing sugar in jams and jellies, after you open the can, because sugars function in jams and jellies, is a, there's a second function, it's also a preservative. Now, it's not preserving it in the jar because you've, when you've processed the jars, you've gotten all of the pathogens out of the jar, right? But once you open the jar, you've exposed it to air and increased the risk of mold. So what you'll find is your reduced sugar jams and jellies, or ones that you've simply reduced down, will last less long once they're once they're open. And the way you know when it's gone bad is pretty easy. It starts developing mold. Once you see mold on top of your preserves, you shouldn't eat them because that bacteria is it's like reaching all the way down into the jar. So, it will change the flavor and the pH and if you're allergic to mold, that's just bad news. Which brings us to the next category of canning with sugar. Other things that we use sugar for would be canning fruits, relishes, pickles, and sauces, okay? So with fruits and pickles and relishes and sauces, the purpose of sugar is, again, it's a preservative. So once you open the jar, it's going to help it maintain its goodness longer. But also, in the jar, it preserves the color and the texture of the fruits. In pickles and relishes, you have some of that same Mm, color preserving capacity, but it also adds that flavor, boosts up the sweetness, that sort of thing. So pick people who like bread and butter pickles, for example, really like to have sugar in them. That's how you end up with bread and butter pickles as opposed to dill ones. Sauces are the same thing. It's a flavor thing and preserving the color. What this means, because it does not affect the pH or the density of the canned food, is that you can make those recipes without the sugar and process them at the same time because the processing times are figured out in a lab and, you know, the pH and the density of the food in the jar is what impacts the time that it takes for the middle of that jar to get up to temperature to kill everything. Now, this is assuming you're using recipes that include vinegar in them for the pickles, relishes, and sauces. If you are doing a sauce recipe that does not have vinegar in it, Well, I'm not sure I'd mess with the recipe too much because you're now bridging over into a low acid food, which is the pressure canning. And I'm just, you know, I'm cautious about this. I'm more cautious about that because of botulism than anything else. But if you're following a pick, I mean, pickles and relishes and sauces usually have a vinegar component and that's bringing your pH way down, which means your acid way up puts you out of the zone of being a botulism risk. And this all lands on one thing about sugar that you should know. It is pH neutral. That means adding sugar to whatever you're making is not raising or lowering your pH at all. It is intended as a preservative and it's kicking in, you know, while in the jar, keeping the color and the texture a little bit nicer. But also once you open it, 
items in those jars will last longer. So if you're going to go into lower sugar canning, just know that open it and use it is your new MO. Eric, thanks for the question. It was fun for me to talk to the lab. I haven't talked to them in a couple years. Guys, do send your questions in on website and marketing things or coffee or any food question, really. If I don't know the answer, I usually can find somebody who does. Also, we've got Jack's Bourbon Cooled Bean back in stock at Holler Roast Coffee. So if you've been wanting to get your hands on some of that, I started with 200 pounds and didn't really announce it much, but sort of opened up pre-sales. We're, we've gone through 80 pounds. There are only 120 left. So if you want to get your hands on some of that, head over to hollerroast.com and then click on Jack's Bourbon Cooled, and we'll get that into the mail for you right away. Or if you're thinking, you know what? I don't want this till December. There is a delivery option that I won't roast it till December, but I'll put some aside for you if you're planning to use it as Christmas gifts. Okay, guys, go out and make it a great week. I think one of the smartest things I ever did in my life was make Nicole Sauce part of TSP's community of expert council members. I really do. I will I'll take credit for making that smart decision, and I'm really grateful that we have her. Next up, we have a question for expert council member Darby Simpson on choosing a beef breed of cattle for homestead-type use or maybe you know one extra cow to sell off, uh, not necessarily for ranching. Is there really a big difference, though? Should maybe the homesteader use pretty much the same breeds that the guy farming for a profit does? How does that work out, Darby? Let us know. Hey there, everybody. This is Darby Simpson of Simpson Family Farm and Grass-Fed Life. This week, I'm calling in to answer another question on the TSP Expert Council, and it comes from Matt via MeWe to Uncle Jack. Matt asks, Darby, when adding cattle to a small farm in the beginning, does it really matter what breed? I want to add cattle next year, three to four heifers perhaps. This will be for family consumption and to sell one to two to offset the cost. Longhorns are so cheap it makes it hard to justify black Angus and or low line premium costs. In the back of my mind, I hear, don't let perfect get in the way of good. So... Really, Matt, when you say, you know, longhorns are cheap, you didn't tell me where you're at, that makes me think you're perhaps down in the south somewhere. Um, and if that's the case, I think you've got the right mindset here. I mean, not only, uh, particularly in your situation, would it be hard to justify the expense of, of black Angus cattle, but if you're down south, you don't want black Angus cattle uh, because those little buggers get hot out there in the sun. Uh, I've referenced this many, 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 many times in my years of speaking and teaching, and I'm regurgitating something I heard, gosh, going back almost 10 years ago from Greg Judy about a study done on cattle. On a 95-degree day, red cattle had a skin temperature of about 102, 103, somewhere in there, and black cattle had a, a skin temperature of like 127. Who do you think goes out and grazes first? <laughs> the red cows. And uh, cows don't gain weight if they don't go out and graze. So I think the first thing you want to do when you're looking at cattle is you want to get something that's locally adapted. Now, if you've got locally adapted black Angus and you can get them at a fair price and people in your area are willing to pay a premium 
for Black Angus, uh, then by all means go for it. I mean, that's the flip side of this. You know, do, is there a premium associated with Black Angus? Sure. On both ends. It costs more to buy them, but you can sell them for more. At least that's what we have found on our farm. But if you can get low line, or not low lines, but uh, longhorns, you know, at a, at a really good price and people in your area are used to consuming longhorn, And if you've got good pasture and you can uh, put, you know, a nice weight gain on these guys and get some good marbling in a grass-only system, you're going to be just fine. And, you know, here's here's the other thing you need to think about. You're, you're doing this as a kind of a quasi-homestead-slash-farmstead operation where you're wanting to put one or two in your freezer and basically get your meat in exchange for the labor that you put into all four animals so that you kind of, you know, basically get your meat for free minus, your, you know, your time. And that's a great model. That's a great setup. Um, but you still need to run it like a business. You need to put pencil to paper. You need to calculate all of your costs. You need to be honest with yourself. You need to track expenses. And you need to sell uh, these other animals accordingly. And that may be higher than what one of your neighbors is willing to sell them for or what somebody could go buy one for at a sale barn or something. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you really, I, I would still tell you to run it like a business, you know, and, and track everything, keep a ledger and track all of your, you know, your inputs and, and all, all your costs and, and come up with a, a sale price that works for you to obtain your goal. And that's for you to get your meat basically in the freezer for maybe just your time and the butchering fees. And I think that's a very admirable goal. And we would, again, kind of call that a farmsteading slash homesteading mix there. But you still got to treat it like a, like a professional. So I think really you need to stop and ask yourself, okay, well, how much of a premium are black Angus cows? You know, if they're only 10 or 20, 30 cents a pound live weight, go for it. Um, you want to get something that's locally adapted and you want something that's going to, if you're in a grass only system, something that's going to gain well on grass. So the other thing I always tell people, you got it again, get something that's locally adapted, know what your customers want and expect. Um, but also if you're in a grass only system on your farm, you need to buy animals out of a grass only system nearby. And frankly, Color is kind of secondary if they're coming out of a grass-only system and getting put into a grass-only system. You can go buy the finest-looking black Angus cows around and and put them uh, in a grass-only system, but maybe they came out of a system where they're getting a little bit of feed every day, and they're going to struggle bad. In fact, they're probably going to lose weight for a few months until their rumen adjusts, and they can start putting that weight back on. So all things to consider um, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with longhorns, but again, look for something that's locally adapted. The one thing I will tell you, do not go out and get a quote-unquote dual-purpose breed or animals that came out of a uh, a dairy where you're getting like, you know, Holstein steers or something. That's what we see a lot of that here. We got a lot of dairies around. And, you know, people can buy those Holstein steers pretty daggone cheap in March and April, uh, and they will fatten up just fine if you put them on loads and loads and loads of grain. And if that's what you're into, hey, more power to you. That's not what I'm into. <laughs> I'm into grass-only systems and building soil and sequestering carbon. Um, 
but you know if if you're okay putting them on feed then honestly you know it doesn't really matter what you put out there if you put them on feed and you put them on some decent pasture they're going to get big and plump and fat and taste good uh, so it really all depends on your context and, and what your customers want. You're going to have to do a little research. What do people expect? What do they want? What are they willing to pay? Um, you know, what are they used to? Are you trying to be marketing this into the city? Maybe people you work with, people that, uh, you know, be willing to buy a quarter or a half, you know, from you and they're in the city uh, and they're willing to pay a little bit of a premium. All things to, uh, to think about there, but don't get a dual purpose breed. Don't get a dairy cow. Get a beef breed. Get it locally adapted. If you want to be all grass on your farm, get it out of an all grass system. Uh, and and again, do some research on what your customers want. So those are my thoughts, Matt. Hope you find those helpful. Everyone, if you want to learn more about this kind of stuff, we've got tons and tons of free resources and paid-for resources out at grassfedlife.co. Lots of podcasts out there. Feel free to check it out. Uh, if you've got a question along these lines concerning beef, pork, poultry, running a for-profit farm business, which we've done for the last 13 seasons on our farm, feel free to kick them over to Jack and he'll send them my way. As always, everyone, have a wonderful weekend and take care. Next up, we got what I consider a pretty simple one, but I sent it on off to uh, to Ben Falk because Ben's done a lot with building technologies and things like that and a lot in northern climates. I had somebody write me, and they were really concerned about the fact that they had a septic tank for a home, and then they were they were moving to a situation where they were going to a composting toilet. And that meant that the septic tank would get little to no use uh, during the winter, and they live in New Hampshire, where, you know, it gets pretty cold there. So I sent this one off to, to Ben just to kind of sanity check it for us. Ben, what do you think about this? Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with uh, Whole Systems Design. Question about the septic system not being used and freezing. Um, I'd be really surprised if the tank would freeze not from use because there's you know, thousands upon thousands of second homes and third homes in the U.S. with second syst- with septic systems in cold, very cold areas, as cold as anywhere in New Hampshire, um, that are used very intermittently, go months at a time without use at all. Um, so that's a little different than just putting the gray water in it and and uh, not the not black water. But it's not that different, um, and I would think a freezing issue would affect both in a similar, if not the same way. Um, I also know people who don't use their septic, and they're in a similar climate and haven't had a problem. I'm sure it is possible if the septic system isn't you know, as deep as it should be the whole way through, both the tank and the lines. Um, but usually, they're uh, every time I've seen them, they're very deep, and they're not going to freeze. Um, for what it's worth, it, it, it's probably worth talking to people in your area. It sounds like you, you already have maybe to some extent, but that sounds un- highly unlikely to me, but, um, worth considering for sure. Um, good luck. I would, uh, tend to agree on that one. There was some background noise there. Ben clearly made that, uh, recording for us while outside, but that's better than not getting one just so y'all understand why that was that way. Uh, next I've got a question for John Pugliano specifically about Forex trading and, uh, tax reporting requirements and such. And he'll give us a little lesson in what Forex means for those of us that maybe are not familiar with it. John, take it away, man. 
Hey, TSP listeners, today we have a financial question from Michael, and Michael is asking about Forex trading and what method of tax reporting that he should use. Well, first off, what is Michael talking about? What is Forex? Well, Forex is simply the abbreviation for the foreign exchange market where you trade foreign currencies through futures contracts. Okay, now let's get into the detail of Michael's question. Michael's asking me about my opinion of Forex trading, if I have any experience with it, and then specifically about the tax consequences. Let me cover the tax consequences first. Michael says that his research online tells him that there's two methods of reporting. One is Section 1256, and the other is Section 988. And he mentions that while the 1256 appears to be more favorable from a tax consequence standpoint, He's not sure what designates who's allowed to choose which format you use. In the case of Michael's question, there are two different reporting methods of how you calculate your tax as it relates to a gain or a loss. And this is really important for everybody to understand, even if you're not a Forex trader, because if you're making any type of investment, or in fact, if you're buying or selling anything, there's likely a tax consequence associated with it. And the rationale behind the tax code is usually not intuitive. So on a really simplistic scale, think of it this way. Every time you buy or sell something, you either have a gain or a loss, and the IRS wants you to report that. Now, here's where it gets really complicated. There's different rules to apply based on the category. A stock and equities have one method of reporting, and then there's commodities and futures trading, and it gets really complicated and convoluted. In general, when you're dealing with stocks or equities, most of you probably know that there are short-term gains and long-term capital gains. Short-term gains, as it relates to selling a stock or a mutual fund or an ETF, the short-term means that if you've held it for less than one year, it's generally taxed as ordinary income. So it's taxed at the same federal rate that your paycheck would be taxed at. If you're in a 25% tax bracket for your salaried income, then that would be the same tax bracket that your short-term capital gains on the sale of an equity like a stock or an ETF or a mutual fund, that would be taxed at that same rate. On the other hand, if you hold it long-term, and as far as equity trading goes, long-term means a year and one day, well, then it gets taxed at a more favorable rate, which is generally only 15%, but if you're a really high-income earner, it could be higher than that. And if that's not convoluted enough, you'll notice that I specifically talked about equities, equities being defined as most stocks and ETFs and mutual funds, but not all of them. For example, if you're in something in the energy sector that's a master limited partnership, that comes under a completely different tax category. And so you really need to check what type of funds or stocks you own because they may have additional K-1 type reporting requirements and or they're just taxed totally differently. For example, gold fits into a separate category where it's taxed as a collectible. It doesn't matter if you've owned it short-term or long-term. Things are really that complex and convoluted, and this is why Jack and I always say you really need to talk to a tax professional. Okay, so let's get into the detail of Michael's question and how this Section 1256 applies to him. Section 1256 allows all the trades, the gains and losses, to be aggregated and to be put into a 60-40 split, meaning that 60% of the gains or losses are taxed as a long-term capital gain at the more favorable 15%, and the other 40% would be taxed at the higher ordinary income rate. 
So for someone in Michael's situation that's basically a day trader that would be making multiple trades every day, always closing out their position, normally that would all count as a short-term gain and tax at the higher rate of ordinary income. That's what happens under Section 988. But if you're able to receive the more favorable treatment of the Section 1256, then the majority of your transactions, even though you're closing them out every day and they're all theoretically short-term, for tax purposes, 60% of them are going to count as long-term trades. That's very advantageous. You're going to want to talk to your Forex broker because I believe that the election that you make of whether you go with Section 1256 or the less favorable Section 988 is simply a declaration that you make with the broker up front and they agree at the end of the year to consolidate all your trades and report them on the 1099B. Now, I'm not an expert on this, but as far as I'm aware, as long as you're doing standard Forex trading in contracts and you're not doing spot trading nor taking physical possessions of the trades, then I believe you automatically qualify for this Section 1256 reporting. But this should be easily resolved simply by talking to your broker because they're the ones that are going to issue the 1099B. But don't take my word for it. Talk to a CPA that specializes in handling Section 1256. I think this can be done very easily over the phone. It's probably not going to even cost you anything because you're just interviewing the CPA to understand what services he provides and if they're going to meet your needs. And then even if it does get complicated and he's going to charge you for, I don't know, a 30, 45 minute consultation. Well, even if you have to pay for that, I think that would be money well spent because you want to make sure that this is set up right and proper at the beginning. And I think if you set this up properly to begin with, you're going to find out that as a Forex trader, your broker can issue you a 1099B. That 1099B can be one simple page that aggregates your thousands and thousands of trades that you may make during the year. It'll aggregate that into a simple one-page statement that you can then send to your CPA. The CPA can then fill out the proper form. I believe it's 6781. And then that calculation is added as one line item on your Schedule D of your 1040, and you're done. I mean, it could be that simple, but you have to make sure that it's all set up properly to begin with. The other reason that it's really important that you're going to want to talk to a CPA is because I think that you can qualify under the trader tax status. It's trader tax status. It's abbreviated TTS. What that would mean is that you're not a casual retail trader, but that you're engaged in high volume, daily, active day trading. And the reason that's important is that as a regular retail investor, the only tax expenses that you can deduct would be normal transaction fees, like brokerage commission or fees on margin trading, things like that. But if you're a professional trader, if you're under the trader tax status, then your investing would be categorized as a business and you could potentially qualify for other business deductions that are involved with your trading. For example, you could potentially write off your office space. Or you could write off your computer system or the cost of your internet access or if you're paying fees, uh, you know, subscription fees to get different trading information. All that would potentially be available to you as a qualified business expense if you have the designation of the trader tax status versus just being a regular retail investor. So that's definitely something you want to look into. Now, as far as the other part of your question where you ask about my experience with Forex trading and what recommendations do I have? Well, let me say this. I'm not quite as ancient as old Dr. Bones, but I've been around for a long time, 
And I've met a lot of people that have attempted to make a living from things like day trading and Forex trading. And Michael, I'll tell you, of all the people that I've met over these years, I think maybe on, you know, one or two hands, I can count the number of people that have been successful at it. In fact, most people, when I follow up with them six months later, they're no longer day trading or no longer Forex trading. And it's either because the amount of time they spent doing it didn't justify the small amount of money that they made in return, or worse yet, they just lost all their seed money to begin with. So I don't want to discourage you. I just want to caution you that trying to make a living from Forex trading isn't as easy as it's made out to be. Now, having said that, as I read over the detailed information that you sent me, I think you're definitely headed in the right direction and you're taking the necessary steps to at least give you a shot at having a good opportunity of success. Number one, you haven't quit your day job, and this is something that you can do while you're still gainfully employed at your regular job. It doesn't take any time away from that. You've also been experimenting with it. You've been you know, paper trading, doing simulated trades, making sure that you understand the logic and the pattern recognition, and you're developing your own style and methods of trade that in your simulated processes are proving profitable. So you're not just doing something in theory, but you're actually applying it in a real-world simulation and it's proving profitable to you. You also mentioned that you're going to be using leverage, that you understand how that works, and that you're going to have enough cash on hand to avoid a margin call. And then, of course, you're also thinking about your tax consequences up front. So that's, again, a really wise decision. I think that in terms of being prepared for Forex trading, you've laid that groundwork. And as long as you go into this knowing the risks associated with it, you know, I say good for you. Give it a try. Report back in six months or sometime at the end of next year and let us know how it worked out for you. Well, Michael, good luck. Thanks for your question. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast. And in the spirit of trying to bring as much diversity to a Friday show as I can, here's J.R. Haley with uh, rehabbing, you know, lightly rusted, lightly abused, used firearms. J.R., take it away. Hey, TSP. J.R. here with the expert counsel, answering your questions on guns, gun gear, and all things firearms related. Today's question comes in from the MeWe Monday chat. When buying used firearms, what steps can you take for dealing with minor rust, minor pitting, and missing bluing? Also, what are some of the considerations for first time cleaning on used firearms? Well, that is a fantastic question, MeWe Chat. I absolutely love great gun stores that take in lots of used firearms. Even consignment racks are going to get me cruising by to see what's available. And if any of you have ever looked at used firearms, you'll realize that it is one commodity that holds its value. The common stuff just kind of finds a moderate level and stays there at that value, and the rare stuff just gets more rare and keeps going up in price. When you're buying used firearms, the likelihood that the store is going to let you try it before you buy it is pretty rare. So make sure and ask about and see if they have some type of return policy. Maybe it's 24 hours or maybe it's seven-day return policy. But if you're buying from a you're buying a used gun from a gun show, then you need to be pretty familiar with the type of firearm you're after to give it a good inspection there at the table. They may let you do a basic takedown or field strip, but buying used assumes some risk, just like any endeavor. Maybe in a future segment, we'll take some time to go into some tips on buying used firearms. I can really wrap on about that for quite a while, but let's cover the topic at hand for today. So minor rust and minor pitting are not too difficult to deal with if they're on the outside of the firearm. 
just remember, when rust forms, the chemical reaction of oxidation actually transforms that metal, and it's basically removed from that firearm, removed from that metal. So in the case of minor rust, no big issue, but once we start getting into pitting, we aren't going to just put the metal back onto the firearm again and make it smooth. That would be where we would go into just doing a touch-up, and we'll call that cold blue steps, and we'll cover that here in a little bit. For removing minor rust, any bore cleaner that you use, a soft rag or a patch, will be the best tools to do that with. Hops number nine, COP, which stands for Cleaning Lubricant Protectant, Brick Lean, uh, all these are going to work for you for that. Put the solvent on the rag and gently go back and forth over the affected places. Periodically change out the cloth and repeat until the rust is removed. Once you're satisfied, take another soft cloth and put a light amount of gun oil on the cloth and wipe down the metal parts on the firearm. The lightest of coatings is what we're looking for here. It doesn't need to be a thick coat because that'll just attract more dust and everything to it. So a really light coat is what we're looking for. For removing minor rust for min minor pitting, we have to go and step it up and be a little bit more aggressive. But not so much that we're getting out the Dremel tool, the, the dreaded Dremel tool in gunsmithing. Uh, for this, we're going to use a very fine 4 ot steel wool. wool. So that's four zeros. So zero, 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 fine steel wool. We'll be using that same cleaning solution as before. Your favorite bore cleaner is just going to do fine. Take that four-aught steel wool, and it's going to be fine enough that it's not really, if you don't lean into it, it's not going to affect the firearm finish. But it's a step above that soft cloth so it can get down in those minor pitting holes and pull that rust up out and away from the metal. You can periodically use a soft cloth to come behind the steel wool to wipe away any of the excess and the rust and stuff that you've pulled in the grime. You've pulled up away from the metal. Once you're satisfied that the rust is removed, back to a very light coat of gun oil on the metal to prevent further rust from forming. Now this step won't repair the pitting, it's just designed to remove the rust from inside those pits and give us a rust-free foundation for moving forward. To repair the pitting like it never happened involves buffing the metal back down to a smooth surface, essentially removing the metal to the depth of the pitting. I kind of illustrate that so that you understand that once pitting happens, you're more than likely going to live with that for the rest of that firearm's life. But there's a step we can do to refinish that area so it's more resistant to rust than just using our normal light coating of oil, and we call that doing a cold blue. Now, I'd like you all to think of this process as being used for touch-up and maintenance of a firearm. If you go to some of these cold blue solution manufacturer websites and see their how-to videos, they make it seem like you can just strip the firearm down, strip all the finish down, and re-blue the whole thing uh, at your house. And f I'm pretty handy with doing DIY things around the house, but as far as re-bluing an entire firearm, that is something that I have no desire to go that far with. So, again, just being able to use this to do some maintenance and do some touch-up on those spots and give us some more 
protection against corrosion in those areas. It's a little difficult to explain in an audio format, so I've sent Jack a link to a couple videos. The first video gives a realistic idea of what cold blowing can do to a damaged area on a firearm's finish. Then I also sent a manufacturer's video. It kind of gives an example of what I'm talking about where they make it seem really, really simple to do. But if you really want to get into the different bluing options for the home, check out Midway USA's videos from a gentleman by the name of Larry Potterfield. He, had, he and his team have produced dozens of great how-to videos for the gunsmithing enthusiasts. Last piece we can cover is the cleaning of a used firearm for the first time. When I bought them from several retail stores, I've never really had an issue with a dirty firearm. But when you get them from gun shows or maybe private sales or you've inherited them, it's really good to go over them uh, in a deep clean right there at the, at the beginning. So let me give you a couple pro tips on some things that are make this really easy. Synth synthetic safe gun scrubber. The chemical compound just really melts that carbon away. And you get the added benefit of the aerosol air pressure pushing that gunk off as you use it. So stick with the synthetic safe side of it. That way, if you have any plastic or polymer components on your firearm, it's not going to discolor them. Next one is Q-tips. Get the ones that don't have the plastic middle part, but they have the older paper-based middle part to the Q-tip. The reason for that is it's more stiff and it's able for you to kind of dig into some of those channels and crevices and pull out some of that muck and grime and in those nooks and crannies that are hard to reach. It's a tool that I use also when I take and want to put a light coating of oil in those hard to reach places. I use Q-tips all the time for that. Next one is the nylon brush and a dental pick sec. The nylon brush really helps you get get the stuff that the gun scrubber can't and doesn't risk scratching or mar up, marring up the finish of your firearm. Dental picks help you hit some of those hard-to-reach places also. Many of those kits come with a brass brush and a stainless steel brush. I really haven't found any use for them in the way that I clean firearms. Those tips that I'm giving you pretty much hit everything, and I don't really want to risk marring up the finish on my firearm by using one of those brushes. So they just kind of sit off to the side. The main things I use are nylon brushes, gun scrubber, bore cleaner, old 100% cotton t-shirts, q-tips, gun oil, and the occasional dental pick. That's really the crux of the kit that I have. So after you've cleaned the firearm, you can take one of those Q-tips, put some oil on it, and lightly touch up any of the shiny parts on the action or the slide where metal rubs on metal as the firearm cycles through its firing sequence. And then give it a light coat of oil, the same type, on the outside. So that's the basis of it. Swing on over to the T-SPAS link on Jack's website to see his recommended list of gunsmithing and cleaning products listed on Amazon. And thanks for your question, Monday MeWe Chat folks. And I have links to most of the stuff JR mentioned in the show notes today. And you can always go by the uh, guns category at T-SPAS to see all the stuff I recommend 
for firearms maintenance and things like that. With that, let's get into this uh, topic I wanted to talk to you about today. Uh, and really, uh, the, the title I've given it is Life in the Realm of Combat is Neither Like the Movies Nor the Dojo. And I've spoken on this before, but I want to start out with something because whenever you bring this up, it is inevitable that people will pull out some YouTube video where, the, you know, a versus video. Wing Chung master versus Kung Fu artist or some shit like that, you know. And like I said, usually neither one of these people are masters. Or worse, usually you get one guy's really, really skilled, and then you get some random ass clown that happens to uh, maybe have you know, spent six, six months or so in his particular martial art. But it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter. I saw one such video, and the point was to make the case that boxing was a better discipline than karate. And they had a pretty good, I mean, at least it looked to me like the, the, the karate school that was being used for this demonstration uh, to make them look bad was a pretty good, you know, typical American karate-style school. And these guys probably could handle themselves. Well, they, they brought a boxer in. And uh, the boxer had headgear and gloves, and the uh, the karate guys, there were four black belts. And uh, they had nothing. They had no gear on at all. And uh, I think that was to lure them into the belief that they had a uh, an advantage of some kind. And uh, the boxer then was set to fight each of the four black belts in consecutive order. So not... Four black belts trying to beat his ass, but him fight one, and as soon as the fight was over, had he won, go to the next one. He proceeded to knock the shit out of all four of them in a little under two minutes. And what happened was, this was like a city gym type boxer. This was not a super skilled boxer, but he was a bigger guy than them. And they were forced to play his game because he had gloves and headgear on, of all things. And he went hard charging at them in ways they were not prepared for. These guys were not boxers. And he just knocked the hell out of them. And, and my, my question is, does that prove boxing is a better discipline than karate? Does it really? Let's look at another example of, of this. Um, Mayweather, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Connor, whatever his name is, versus Mayweather. Um, that's probably the only boxing match that I've watched in the last 10 years. Um, what the hell's that dude's name? I'll, uh, Conor McGregor, right? MMA guy. He's going to fly at Floyd May Mayweather Jr. He did that. And it was, uh, it was an incredibly well promoted fight. I, I, I paid for pay per view to watch it because the hype was so good that I wanted to see it, even though I knew I was going to be watching something that wasn't far off from WWE SmackDown. Um, If you watched that fight, and you know anything about boxing, and I was texting my buddy David and another buddy of mine, John Dowie, who you guys know from Dowie Microgreens Farm, uh, and Dowie was an amateur boxer, and, and, and Dowie and I were having really interesting text conversations, and we were both constantly pointing out back and forth to each other that, that Mayweather was pulling his punches. Now, I want to be clear on something. I'm not saying it wasn't a real fight. It wasn't a real boxing match. What I'm saying is Mayweather was landing blows where he was not delivering the totality of the of the power he was capable of, even, for instance, for a jab. Obviously, a jab is not as powerful as you know a right cross, but what I'm saying is he was landing blows consistently 
that he was not using everything he had. Now, I know what some of you are going to say. Well, if you use everything you have in every punch, I get that. I get that. Uh, you can wear yourself out. I also get that if you do that and you miss, you set yourself up for a hell of a counterpunch. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a conscious decision to pull back on some of the blows. And the reason was both of them were making a huge multi-million dollar payday. Mayweather knew he was going to win that fight. Everybody that was a thinking person knew that, they, that he was going to win that fight because they were playing his game. They were playing his game. And it, let's not make no mistake about it. Even though these are two very skilled fighters, and I don't want to fight either one of them either style, it is a game. Two highly trained people training for months, getting ready for a single fight. It's a game. It's a sport. It's not the real world. Now, I want to know who's dumb enough to believe that if Floyd, May Floyd, Floyd Mayweather crawled in with uh, Conor McGregor into an octagon in an MMA fight that you think Mayweather would win. He wouldn't. Why? One's being forced to play the other one's game. MMA, we can kick the legs. We can grapple. We can push somebody up against a wall, and we don't get a, a command from the referee to break. We can armbar somebody. We can sit on somebody and pound their face in the ground, right? So a lot of this stuff, in a way, and I know a lot of you guys train, and you have a certain martial art you're attached to or whatever, and so you want to start making intellectual jujitsu go on here to try to explain why you're right about this and I'm wrong, and I just don't understand. So let's take it to something not directly combat related. We just did a section on guns, so let's talk about guns. This is something a lot of you don't know about me. I am really good with a shotgun. I don't mean a little bit good, because I don't brag, right? But this is just a good example of a, a teachable moment here, right? I mean that I am good enough with a shotgun, and I'm talking like skeet, sporting clays, and stuff like that. If I dedicated myself to it, I am good enough I probably could shoot in a professional circuit and do very well, in spite of the fact that I'm damn near blind in one eye. And people that have seen me shoot skeet know exactly what I'm talking about. Not only am I good, not only do I hit targets, I disintegrate them, and the speed at which that gun comes up and, and, and shoots is startling. Okay? I have never shot three-gun competition in my life. One of those guns is a shotgun. So let's go and take a guy who spent his whole life training in three-gun. And so you're going to have a shooting competition against Jack Spearco, but we're going to limit it to shotguns. And he shows up with his tactical shotgun ready to just whoop my ass in a competition. And when he gets there, people look at him and go, what are you doing with that extended magazine Bernelli? So I'm here to, that's not going to work for what we're doing today. And somebody hands him a, a, an over and under Beretta white wing. and said, this is going to be much better for what we're doing. He goes, well, what are we doing? Oh, you're going to shoot Jack in sporting clays. Not only is he going to shoot me in sporting clays, he's going to shoot me in sporting clays at the range that I go to and shoot sporting clays. And the first station that we're going to shoot is a, is a crossing inbound double with the, with the clays moving about 45, 50 miles an hour. And they're going to come in from opposite sides and cross in opposite directions. And he's not shot sporting clays ever. Unless this dude grew up in South Dakota shooting pheasants, and even then, he's probably still screwed. 
But unless that's the case, I don't care how good this dude is at three-gun. He's going to get smoked by me. And if I go shoot the shotgun station of three-gun against him, he's probably going to whoop my ass. Let's go to, like, the, the best guy with a gun we can think of, a, an army sniper. Cold bore shots at a thousand yards. You tell him he's going to shoot against Jack Spierko. I'll kick his ass. Again, unless this dude grew up shooting pheasants in, in South Dakota or grouse in Pennsylvania like I did, he shows up and we're on that same sporting clays range. And they're like, dude, I don't know what you're doing with that 308. You're not going to hit a lot of clays with that. I'm going to smoke his ass. Now, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not as good with a rifle as I am with a shotgun. I have a natural talent that has been reinforced with a lot of muscle memory and training with a shotgun. I'm good with a rifle. I was an expert rifleman in the Army, which means I can hit targets that are half the size of a man at 300 yards with iron sights, because that's how you shot back then, consistently. Or you cannot qualify as an expert rifleman. It just doesn't happen. So I'm not bad. But this dude, if we go shoot 1,000-yard competitions... You can give him a rat-grade rifle and give me his freaking issued rifle, and he's going to beat the hell out of me because I'm playing his game. So what I want you to understand before I even cover the rest of this is that all of these examples, well, they brought a 250-pound bodybuilder in, and he had fought a 150-pound black belt Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, and the Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy beat his ass. Okay, the 250-pound bodybuilder, If he's a, this is where we're going to transition into the real world, right? If he is a scumbag on the street and he wants to steal from that guy, he's going to grab him by the throat and, you know what that sound was? That sound was his head, the little 150-pound guy's head, hitting a wall where it cracks like a coconut and his brains come out of his ears and he dies. You can set up all the scenarios you want and giant people in real life kill small people. If it is a physical altercation, nine times out of ten, which is not good odds for you, no matter how much you've trained, the guy that's 100 pounds bigger than you is going to kill you if he chooses to kill you. People in this thread said things like, well, I always play the bad guy at our dojo. And everybody that tests, to, I think it was to Brown Belt, has to escape from a hold that I'm putting on them. And they all manage to do it. And I didn't say it this way, but my thought was like, I could easily disprove this by asking if you suck. Cause, so does that mean they've trained you, you're a higher level, but all these people are better than you before they advance to your level? Well, no, of course it doesn't. It doesn't mean anything. What it means is there's some hold that's a setup, so we're already out of the real world, that the person allows themselves to go into. Okay, And then his job is not to take that hold further and cause the person to tap out or whatever. It's to maintain the hold. And if the person struggles long enough, with, and, and it's, a, it's a battle of attrition at that point, eventually they probably will get out of the hold, especially if they've been trained to do so. But I said to him, I said, and if you tried to kill them, what would happen? And while there was two paragraphs of response, the first sentence, the first phrase said it all, oh, they'd be dead But, no, see, that's it. It doesn't, there is no but. There is no but. It doesn't work that way. You don't train the 130-pound woman in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and expect 
that she's going to be able to physically defend herself against a 200-pound man that wants to rape her. She might. Okay? I'm not saying not to train. I'm not saying there's no value in this. I spent a lot of my life training in different levels and different types of fighting arts. But it's it's not something you can depend on. What that woman needs is a 38 hammerless snub-nosed titanium frame tucked into either her appendix or the small of her back. And in understanding that in some situations, feigned compliance and a, and a hole in the head is a lot more likely to be effective or blowing the fucker... Or blowing the prick's balls off is a lot more likely to be effective than an arm bar. And I'll tell you something else that you need to understand, whether you want to understand it or not. A lot of people that have trained are definitely capable of inflicting serious pain on a person larger than them. And if it works to the point of incapacitation, or at least breaking so you can get away, great. If it works but it doesn't work to that level, what you now have is a large person who is more enraged at you than they were before. I had a situation one time where I was kind of watching a guy's back in a bad situation. There were two huge men. I'm talking huge, like, Hell's Angel, giant biker-looking guys. They wanted to beat this guy's ass. And this guy was an old man, and I'm like 22 right out of the army. And I know, in spite of the fact that I can handle myself, like, these guys will kill me. And I'm standing near one of them, and I can see that perfect spot in his knee. And I know that if he goes for this dude, Wayne, who is an owner of a bar that I frequented, and that's how this all thing was going on, I know that as soon as he takes a step forward, where that knee's going to be, and I know I can kick that dude's knee, and I know it doesn't matter how big he is, that I'm going to freaking hyperextend his knee, and he's going to go down. And I'm also thinking his buddy is going to kill me if I do that. And what the hell do I do to try to get Wayne out of this? Because fighting was not my first choice. It was my absolute last one. And we were eventually able to defuse the situation and get some other people involved. That's the real world. Doesn't matter that maybe I might be able to take this dude out. Unless his buddy is so concerned for his good, you know, his, his benefit that he goes down to help him up and I can grab this dude Wayne and get him to back down because he's too stupid to back down and get him in the door before this guy turns on us, he's going to kill both of us. Doesn't matter what I know. It doesn't matter what I know. And back to the fake world of training. One of my first wake ups to this was when I was a kid, I took karate. I was like 10 years old. And in like two months, I tested out in a yellow belt. And in my dojo, that was not a formality. You didn't just get a yellow belt because you were a kid that went to karate there. It was a tough test. And I was proud of myself. And I was pretty good for a guy with one eye. I'd even kind of adapted and learned how to fight a little bit better and definitely try to hide the fact to my opponent that I only had one eye. All the guys in my dojo knew I had one eye and would take advantage of it all the time. And that made me a little bit better about defending against it. But I get to this tournament, and we're sitting down, and we're talking, to, you know, we're talking amongst ourselves, and we're talking to other kids there. This is not Karate Kid, which is fake as shit. This is not, we all hate each other, even though I never met these kids sitting around me before from other schools, and even though we're going to fight in this point match, we're nice to each other. And there's this kid sitting next to me, he's got a white belt. 
We start talking. He says, how long have you been doing this? I said, about two months. How about you? He said, oh, about two weeks. A little bit smaller than me. You can tell he's a little bit awkward. I was thinking, man, I hope I, I hope I draw this kid for my first match. Well, I did, and I almost lost. He ended up 2-0 on me. It was a three-point match in this type of, of, of karate. And um, the reason was he wasn't that good. He was aggressive as hell. When that referee said fight and dropped his hand, this kid came at me like we were on a schoolyard. He's trying to beat my ass. Now, the only people I'd ever sparred up till that point were my friends in my own school. And while we went at each other and we would land some blows with some force, and even though he would use a lot of aggression, there was a difference because neither we just did not want to hurt each other. And we were friends. This kid was not my friend and he knew it. He got up on me two points because I was so so thrown off. Now, again, I'm 10 years old. But my sensei, Lee, pulls me aside and he says, you need to get your shit together. This kid's going to win. He has no business beating you. And I upped my aggression. I was able to score three consecutive points and win. Still got my ass handed to me in the next match. Just handed to me. But I got through that. But it taught me something. That what we had been doing up to that point that I was pretty good at had its limits. And this kid who was completely out of control, and honestly, probably on the edge of what the refs would allow at that level of competition without disqualifying him, showed me the, the, the fallacy that I had created in my mind that I was actually fighting when I was sparring. I wasn't. It was a game. And what we were doing was still a game. And everything that is inside a situation with a referee and a set of rules is a game. And if you take any scenario where you force someone who's competent in one discipline to fight someone who's really highly competent in another discipline, they're going to probably lose within that discipline. But in the real world, they're not going to square off against you the way, however it is, whether you're, you know, doing Wing Chun or Kung Fu or karate or boxing or Brazilian Jiu Jitsu or Judo or Sambo, right? They're not going to square off against you that way. And I'll say this another thing. This shit where people talk about, well, I'll take them out in the parking lot. You're a moron. You're an idiot. The only way I'm in a physical altercation with somebody is that I tried to avoid the fight and, and they put me in a position where I didn't have a choice. I will do anything to avoid a fight because I know that every time grown-ass people get into physical conflict with each other for real, there is a potential for someone to die or to have a life-altering injury. And for the other party to end up spending a significant portion, if not the rest of their life, in a cage. So I don't enter into this shit about, we'll go outside and settle this. I don't enter into shit like that. So if what I have to be prepared for, should I ever have to defend myself, in 99% of any situation that I would, is someone for no real apparent reason trying to take me out. And that's the most dangerous situation. One of the things we learned from real combat, I'm talking tanks, planes, bombs, is in most instances, if the goal and objective is total defeat of an enemy, whoever strikes first wins. You know that stupid movie and really great miniseries that came out of the movies? Karate Kid, now Cobra Kai. Crease, the bad guy, strike first, strike hard, no mercy, sir, that seems so horrible because he was teaching it to kids at a high school. But Kreese wasn't 100% wrong. 
Man faces you, he is the enemy. The enemy deserves no mercy. Well, if you're fighting over who's the bigger kid on the playground, that's terrible advice. But if you're in some place walking down a street minding your own damn business and somebody comes after you to kill you because they want your wallet, it's pretty damn good advice. And once you know you're in a situation you can't get out of, striking first and striking hard is not bad advice. That's the real world of combat. And any of these things where you see this little guy can beat up this big guy, it's always based on either, number one, a controlled situation that puts the larger opponent into a point of disadvantage, or you've got a really big guy that's completely incompetent and awkward and doesn't know how to fight at all. Those people exist. They don't, those people don't run around breaking fingers and stealing shit for a living. Those people don't come up to you from behind you and grab you by the neck and choke you out. Those two people don't grab you by the face and crack your head like a coconut on the wall. Again, none of this says you shouldn't train, but let the mythos go. Let the mythology go. I know we're in mythology week for songs this week. But this shit and this philosophy has no place in your life if you want to stay alive because false bravado gets people killed. That's all I got to say on that today. Hopefully it fell not on deaf ears. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up and let's talk about a couple ways you can support the show. One, do your online shopping at tspaz.com as we talked about earlier today. If you do your online shopping at tspaz, tspaz.com, you will help the survival podcast and the work that we do. No matter what you buy. And I got a serious request for you guys today. I've had Dr. Ken Berry on this uh, show twice. Once very recently about ketogenics in the past based on his book, uh, Lies Your Doctor Told You. If you've ever considered possibly buying that book, if you want to know more from Ken, please consider buying the book today. Yes, if you buy it through my links on my write-up, it will help me. But I want you to help Ken. Uh, Ken is a good dude. He's wicked smart. Guy's got three quarters of a million subscribers on YouTube. There is a reason. He's been a longtime member of this community. He's been listening to this show since I was in my Jetta. For those of you that have not been around that long, you don't even know what I'm talking about. I used to podcast in my car for the first 18 months. That's over 10 years ago. Ken has listened to this show since then. Whenever I've asked him for advice or help on anything, he's done it. And something recently happened to him that's really sad. Uh, and, and keep in mind with this, his wife is expecting a child very, very soon. Their house burned down to the ground, total loss. And I reached out, and he's in, like, central Tennessee. He's near Camden, like, where uh, John Willis and, uh, what's his name, uh, from SOE Tactical, uh, John Willis from SOE Tactical, James uh, from, uh, God, what the heck is his name? James Jager from Tactical Response, and there's a bunch of other people in this audience right there in in, in Camden. Uh, I said, is there anything we can do for you? I mean, I know I can get some people to show up with trucks or whatever, and I, I don't think there's not to do. Like, it's such a total loss. There's not even cleanup to do. But he said, you know, maybe you can tell people to pick up a copy of the book. So that's what I'm asking you guys to do today. Consider supporting Ken. Get a copy of his book. And on top of it, it belongs in your library. What this book does is it goes you know, through dozens of lies doctors tell. And I don't even like the word lie, but Ken told me I have to accept it. Here's what I mean. I think doctors mean well. I don't think they're intending to lie to you when they say a lot of these things. I've been trained and taught that. His view is they're doctors. It's their responsibility to read the latest research and know. 
This book might save your life or the life of somebody you love, and it will help a really good man right now who could use a little bump. And I think it just sometimes it feels good, even if it's not a ton of money. But, you know, few people pick the book up. People actually give a shit when you're down. I think that makes a difference in people's lives. I think it's a big thing that we've always done with TSP Community. So pick, consider picking up a copy today. Lies my doctor told, Lies Your Doctor Told You by Dr. Ken Berry. You can find it at T-SPAS, and you can always support us by doing your online shopping there. That brings us to our song of the day. I love this song. This song was written the year I graduated, actually released the year I graduated from high school, 1990. And so it's old. But at the time, the band that released it was old. They were coming. This is their comeback album, and it was the title track on their comeback album. This is the Allman Brothers, and it was called Seven Turns. And we are in Mythology Week. So what is the mythology behind Seven Turns? There's a Navajo tradition that in every human's life, as they walk the road that is the road of life, there are seven turns they have to make. There are seven key points in the life of every human that are critical points in their life. And if they make the wrong turn, there's only two things that they can do. One is they can backtrack and correct, or they can continue on the road that ruins their lives. I love that story. Is it really seven turns? You know, I'm going to tell you that I don't think it matters. I think the truism in this story is there are points in your life where you have to make decisions. And sometimes those decisions are so critical, if you've made the wrong one, you have to accept that you can't change the past, but you do control the future. And while maybe you can't go all the way back, you can correct to the best ability your mistakes. Good thoughts for a weekend. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Just like a leaf on the wind